0: All right, so we have a little bit of music to listen to. We can see if anyone knows what this is. not seeing anyone reaching for the jeopardy button <laughs> <laughs> you, this has been sung in St. Philip's Church before. Uh, It's not, but that's such a good guess, since it's almost St. Patrick's Day. All right, well, that is a piece that is called The Way, which is a musical setting of a very marvelous poem by George Herbert uh, that we're going to hear more about Later on, as we go through our class. So uh, let me see if I can get all of this to come on in the right way and we will get started. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you for the gift of these longer hours of sunlight. Lord, we pray that as we Come tonight with our hearts and minds full of all of the different things of the day, that you would clear all of that away and that you would help us to be open to what we might learn from Lewis's words that are rooted in the truth of your scripture. Lord, we pray that as we engage this book, that you would help teach us wisdom through it. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to gather in your name and pray that you would lead us by your Holy Spirit, for we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So let's begin, as always, by saying our verse together. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them, for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible, for anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish but understand what the will of the Lord is. And as we walk through this book, which has, uh, if anything was ever going to define the days are evil, what we see going on in a lot of this book would certainly fit that description. But we are beginning to now get the idea of what it means for the community of St. Anne to respond in the midst of that. So there there is some hope in all of this. So just a couple of words on how to approach this class. First, welcome to anyone who is new in person or online or on the podcast. Uh, We are delighted to have you with us. And there are several different ways to approach this class. You can be on the beach, which means you just show up, you lie there, you don't do anything. Uh, Maybe you get something through osmosis, that is great. Or you can snorkel if something that we talk about catches your interest. You can go deep on that part and ignore the rest, or you can scuba dive and just go deep in all of it. And if you're a scuba diver, I want to recommend there is a marvelous handout tonight that is on George Herbert. We're going to talk about George Herbert a little bit more later on. Um, If you are reading this book, uh, I would encourage you to take it one chapter at a time. When the action starts heating up, It's hard to slow down because you want to find out what's going to happen, Uh, but there is so much to contemplate in each one of these chapters. And those of you that have been sticking around since way long ago when we started with the abolition of man, uh, these themes from the abolition of man are really coming home to roost now. So be alert for those as we go through. So just a reminder from abolition of man, some of the themes, men without chest the whole idea that objective value is really important, that when we allow subjectivism to come in and we do away with objective value, um, all sorts of things come and it's not an accident that Lewis calls it a poison. The second thing is the way, this whole idea of the Tao, the natural law that governs human behavior is really the only source for value judgments. And when we do away with that, There is no standard. There is no way of determining right and wrong. And then Lewis talks in The Abolition of Man, the last part about man's control over nature, this whole idea that we can take charge of the world, we can take charge of life and death, and that all of that will be the ultimate way that some men will control others. And this whole idea of deconstructing everything makes it impossible for us to see anything at all. So you'll remember in the Ransom trilogy, the first story, uh, which I commend to you if you haven't read it, uh, Out of the Silent Planet, this Cambridge Don professor Ransom is kidnapped and taken to Mars where he's told he's going to be a human sacrifice. um, A wonderful thing to anticipate during the long journey through space. Uh, But he manages to escape. And so in the next book, uh, he goes to Perilandra, which is another name for Venus, which is a place where creation has happened but the fall has not, and it is a beautiful story of an uncorrupted world and ransom spends time there before coming back to this earth and then that hideous strength picks up there and brings this uh trilogy to a conclusion with all of the forces of good and evil battling over the earth and the source of the title again is that medieval poem by david Lindsay. Uh, that's called a dialogue that's about the Tower of Babel. And the Tower of Babel is something that shows up over and over in this story. And the whole idea of men thinking that they can outwit and outsmart God, that we no longer need God, we're too modern, too intelligent for that. Uh, And we will see some of that particularly tonight. And again, as we say each week, Lewis is very forthright, that this is a story about devilry. That was a bold thing for an Oxford Don to say in 1943, uh, to say that there's such a thing as a devil. And of course, in Take Waters, Lewis really goes deep with that. But he's being very clear here that he believes in spiritual warfare and that that is part and parcel of the themes he was addressing in the abolition of man. So quickly running through the book so far, the first chapter, we meet Jane Studdick, Uh, the one who has these unwanted dreams of horrific things that then seem to come true. Um, She's a 20-year-old, 20-something woman, very committed to a career, very committed to being independent. She is married to Mark Studdock, and they are both in deep competition with each other about which one of them can achieve the greatest success. Mark, her husband, is a college professor um, at Brackton College, and we see in the first opening scene this proposal to sell Bragton Wood, which is the beautiful ancient part of the forest um, that's reputed to be where Merlin's well was located. It's a tourist attraction. It's one of the most ancient sites in England, but they claim financial necessity. Then chapter two, Mark, who is obsessed with professional advancement, Uh, is invited to dinner with the officers of the college. He is very, very thrilled about this. He's very stuck on himself and full of his pride of having been recognized that they've seen his quality and know that they've gotten a good thing. And so he learns a little bit more about the nice and they start talking about these big topics like reconditioning the human race, controlling nature and control in the interplanetary wars Mark doesn't pay any attention to any of that. He just wants to get ahead. He wants to be noticed and be thought well of. So that chapter concludes with that beautiful journey that Lewis described so vividly of Jane going toward St. Anne's, Mark going toward the nice and how those different journeys show so much about those different destinations. And then the next chapter builds on that Bellberry, where the nice is, and St. Anne's on the hill. Nice, the nice is full of doublespeak, poor Mark trying to see if he's getting a job. Um, And a job interview, it's not unreasonable to ask what the job is, what the responsibilities are, who you might work for, what you might be doing, what you might get paid. He can't get any answer to any of that. And they just talk and talk and talk, but don't say anything. Jane goes to St. Anne's, and she hears Um, that her visions are not something to be cured of, but that they are something very important. She is very disturbed by that. She is an independent woman. Any idea that someone is gonna interfere with her is anathema, and so she leaves. So in the next chapter, Uh, We see the liquidation of anachronisms, which is, we could spend a whole class just talking about that title. Uh, But the nice has begun showing up and turning people out of their homes, destroying this beautiful village of Edstow. And then Mark meets the mad person, Reverend Strake, who is like somebody who took a good dose of 60s liberation theology and then took some LSD on top of it. And that's where his theology comes from. It is very bizarre. And the invasive force of workers from the nice comes and they actually partially destroy this beautiful historic monument that is the fellows room at Bracton College. So in the next chapter, Elasticity, Mark gets really frustrated by all this double speak, and he attempts to have a showdown with Wither, the deputy director, I can't stop myself from some of these things, but Wither, Everything about the nice is about death. The names, everything. And it's sterile and it's full of death. Everything at St. Anne's is growth, life, fecundity, all of that. And just look for that as you read. It really is quite remarkable how it's just everywhere. So anyway, Mark tries to have this showdown and it's an absolute disaster. Um, he finds that he's lost his old job, he may not get a new job, he's gonna be broke, he's gonna to be totally embarrassed and shamed before his wife. And then Fairy Hardcastle, probably the most disturbing character in the book, who's head of the secret police, offers Mark a job writing propaganda. And he's so desperate that he's happy to get it. Uh, meanwhile, Jane meets some more with the people at St. Anne's and uh, learns about Mr. Fisher King, which is a bit, Arthur, King Arthur, Holy Grail, um, in case you didn't know, uh, and the man incapacitated by wounded as we said just like that lesson we hear in lessons and carols every year. Uh, so we've got some Christ imagery going on there. And then Jane is um, still determined to guard her independence and not go to St. Ian's. And the next chapter, this huge fog uh, comes down over everything Mark accepts this sort of paid internship kind of job working on propaganda, but he gets into the inner circle. And he's so thrilled with being in this inner circle of being able to sit in the library with the cool people at the nice that he doesn't really care about anything. He forgot all of his initial objections about writing propaganda. He's just so excited that he is in the library in front of the fireplace with the people that really matter. Even though one of those people just told him to go to hell in the chapter before that, he just is uh, overlooking all of those things to get ahead. And he starts hearing about the nice promulgating these riots in order to gain emergency powers. And at first, He's horrified by this, but he notices all the other people think it's great and sort of amusing. So he completely swallows his innate revulsion about that and gets right on board writing propaganda about the riots. Meanwhile, Jane is in the village and she sees this man with these pince-nez glasses, the little circular frames sit on your nose, and he just emanates evil. Evil just is all about him. And she shudders with revulsion at that, and she's so horrified that she immediately goes to St. Anne's, overcoming all of her scruples about independence. Then we have uh, the chapter on the Pendragon. If you get bogged down in the rest of this, just go back and reread this chapter. This chapter is so beautiful. The whole part where Lewis describes the director's room and coming in, and the director's presence, and the light, and the golden aspect of all of it and the beauty and order. um, It's just amazing. And so Jane goes into that presence and she says her world is unmade. She encounters a reality that is far beyond anything she could ever have imagined. And just as an aside, if you go back and reread that, look at how Lewis uses language and he slows the language down in that part. You're sort of rushing around in the other parts of the story and you get to that part and this tranquility just descends and the writing is glorious. So Jane has this wonderful encounter with the director, but then when she tries to go home, she's arrested by the nice police, tortured, burned, and then dumped back off at the manor at St. Anne's. So last week's chapter, Moonlight at Bellberry, um, Weather is very disturbed that Jane Studdick was arrested and tortured not so much disturbed about that part, but the fact that she got away, that's what he's disturbed by. Mark, on the other hand, is in very good spirits because everybody at the nights is talking about the riots and how well that went, and they're reading all about it in the newspapers, but they don't realize he's the one that wrote it. So he's feeling very smug about that. Uh, all the little people who aren't in the know, who aren't part of the inner circle. So then, Wither flatters Mark. Now, remember last time Mark went in there to talk to Wither, Wither didn't even know who he was. He talked to him for like an hour, and then Wither said, you're stunning. Is that right? Um, so now Wither comes up and says, oh, oh, your work is so marvelous. Such marvelous work you're doing for us. Oh, it's so great. And so he then says, Say, you're so great. Why don't you bring your wife out here? Which, of course, is a complete non sequitur. But Mark is such an idiot sometimes that he doesn't think about any of that. All he can think about is having his wife there would spoil his fun. He wouldn't be able to do all the things he's doing and not feel guilty about them. So he was like, no, we're not having her come out here. Well, then he gets in trouble for that. And then Mark goes in to talk to Philostrato, another one of the really creepy scientists, who is the one that wants to get rid of all organic life. Why would you want a tree that has leaves on it? Ooh, leaves fall off and then they decay. It's terrible. You must much better have a metal tree that you can pick up, you can move around, you can put, if you want to look at a tree, you just take it and put it there. It's great. It's what everyone wants. And so Mark is listening to all this and not really internalizing it. But then Philostrato goes on to say, we want to get rid of all organic life completely. And that that's the next step in evolution. And that the head has survived death and his brain lives on. Mark doesn't know what he's talking about. And then he finds out that the head is Francois this Arabian French uh, murderer. Um, whose head they have kept alive, and so they prepare to go meet the head, and this is a great thing if you go back, I'm a big re-reader, I commend rereading to you, but look at the approach of Jane going to meet the director, and then read the approach of Mark going to meet the head, and it is so just wildly different, uh, and there's a lot about that that is going to get unpacked in the next few chapters. So this chapter, the Saracen's head. Um, Saracen um, is uh, a word that we don't hear very much these days, but it uh, could be a synonym for Moorish. So the idea that this guy, because he is Arabian, um, he's potentially a Muslim, we don't really know that, but uh, his head is going to become a central character. So. The story opens with Jane telling her latest dream to Grace Ironwood and the director, and she sees this head floating in her vision, a face that has a beard, a nose, and eyes with colored glasses on. And the top, sorry that we just had dinner, but the top of its skull is boiling over with this grotesque, throbbing mass. And then she realizes the head isn't actually floating, it's on sort of a stand, and it has all these tubes and things going out of it, um, and it can be sort of turned on and off. When it's turned on, it starts making breathing noises, and it starts drooling. And then Jane, this is a nice little touch, it says she felt sympathy for the head because he's drooling, but he doesn't have any hands, so he can't do anything about it. Poor thing. So she goes in and she's horrified by this vision and she's seeing all of this right in front of her. And then she sees three people all dressed in what we would call hazmat suits uh, walking into the room. And they go in front of the head, who's speaking to them in French, and then they're introduced to the head and they all bow down to it. Don't miss that part. They bow down to this head. And Jane is horrified to see that her husband, Mark, is one of the people bowing down to the head. But Jane realizes that there's still hope for Mark because she can tell that he is disgusted and horrified and that he is going to pass out from horror and then be sick, which in fact happens. So the director tells Jane that they're going to try to save Mark to rescue him. So meanwhile, Mark is freaking out at Bellberry. Um, He wakes up and he realizes that this has been not a nightmare, but something that is real. And he also realizes that if he doesn't bring Jane to the nice, his life is forfeit. Now, he's not really thinking very much about poor Jane. Um, He's thinking about, oh, I better get her here because I have to save my life not really thinking too much about what might happen to her, but he is really disturbed about the head and what that might mean. But Lewis points out, this is a great passage that recalls Abolition of Man, that with his modern education, he has nothing to fall back on except self-interest. He has no virtues. He has no moral warehouse. He has no theology. He has none of that, just Self-interest, the preservation of life, the survival instinct—they do. He does worry a little bit that he might bring Jane to the head, and that would be awful for her. And then, as if this is not bad enough, then Fairy Hardcastle appears and tries to convince Mark to sign a form that would let the fairy go and arrest Jane and bring her to Balbury. And he, she argues that otherwise, Jane is going to be sent to an asylum because she's made up some crazy story that Fairy Hardcastle arrested her and burned her with a cigar and tortured her, which obviously is not true, or is it? Obviously is not true, so she must be insane, and therefore she will be put in the asylum, and what the nice does with people in the asylum is to experiment on them. And remember, this is written right in the Nazi Germany time. So everybody, as soon as you hear that, they're thinking about Eichmann and all of that sort of stuff. So Mark is horrified by all of this. There also is this whole sort of bureaucratic, fell out of form to make this happen. Lewis talks about hell as a bureaucracy and the screw tape letters of the nice has got so many elements of that going on. So Mark is determined he's going to go home at once to talk to Jane, and Fairies tells him that that is crazy, he can't do that. He goes and bursts into Weather's office, and then there's this this horrible, really creepy section of his trying to talk to Weather when Weather is like his body is there, but there's the lights are on, but no one's home. I mean, it is really creepy. He's in this trance-like state, and then Mark gets totally terrified by the whole thing, he runs out of the building, he runs through the garden, he runs down the road, he's running to the edge of the property to try to go several miles to get to where there's a bus line, and all of a sudden, just as he gets toward the edge of the property, there's wither walking toward him, dead man walking, (laughs) and uh, he is devastated and breaks down, weeping, and goes back to Belberry. So meanwhile, back at St. Anne's, McPhee is a very interesting character. Uh, he's a composite of a couple of people in Lewis's life. Um, the great knock who was Lewis's tutor, who was this very strong rationalist um, from a Presbyterian background who claimed he was now an atheist and everything was all about rational argument. Uh, and there's also a little bit of George McDonald's accent in here with him as well. Uh, but McPhee invites Jane to come and learn more about the background of the company. And so she tell, he's telling her that Ransom is the name of the director and that he's the famous philologist, that he's traveled to Mars where he met eldols. You might remember way back, we talked about sort of the cosmology of deep heaven and the idea that eldols are more or less like angels or like guardian angels for each planet. Um, they're tremendously powerful, they're incorporeal, Um, They can sort of appear. You can be aware that they're there. Um, They can communicate, all of those kinds of things. And so Ransom met these elders on Mars, and uh, the elders say that Earth is in danger because its elders have turned to the dark side to form a conspiracy against the human race. And uh, he says that the director claims that he continues to receive communications from these elders and McPhee refuses to say for sure whether he believes all this is true or not. He is all about empirical evidence for everything, no faith allowed about anything, but he does say the director is a very smart man. So meanwhile, Camilla comes to uh, tell Jane a little bit more about the director and that his youthful appearance results from the time that he was on Paralantra where paradise is still going on. And this is very much like if you remember reading in the Chronicles of Narnia about Aslan's garden and the golden apple, that if you eat this golden apple, you will always have youth and vitality and goodness and all of that. And so time on parallelential functions like that, it's like the tree of life and Genesis and Revelation. And so he has experienced this, and so he has this beauty and this light and this youth that will always be there. And he will not die. He will move on to deep heaven um, at the end of his life. And there's this great little parenthetical that there may be six or so people that have done that. Um, and Lewis says, there's a lot of conflating of Christianity and other things going on in this part. So um, Camilla also tells Jane that the director is the Pendragon of Logros. All right, we're going to come back to that a little bit. So the director then holds a council of the people at St. Anne's, which is a motley crew, if there ever was one. You have people of different social classes, different backgrounds, um, people that would not normally have anything in common, especially in Britain in the 1940s, it's still pretty class conscious. But he calls this council together, And says, Jane's dreams show the nice have discovered a way of making themselves immortal and that they will call that the next step in evolution. And McPhee says the director has got to act. They need a plan of action. But the director says that he acts under the direction of the elders and that these elders have brought them together and that they will reveal their plans in good time. And you can just see McPhee Bristling about this, that like evil is present. They're marching in the streets. We've got to do something. And of course, the director, and this is the other thing that's beautiful that you might want to notice when you read this chapter. Lewis makes a point over and over again of saying the director smiled. Contrast that with the drooling head. It's just. Beautiful the way he does that. So, anyway, um, McPhee is very frustrated about this. And then they discuss why the Nice has bought Bragdon Wood, realizing it's something to do with Arthurian legend and the fact that Merlin's buried there. The director thinks that what the Nice wants to do is to get Merlin's ancient powers that are not particularly well understood but seem to be something real and unite them with their new technocratic, amoral powers that they have developed and use that as a conspiracy to take out anyone that is not on the side of the bent eldol of the earth. Now, if the bent eldol of the earth sounds sort of like Satan and his demons, you might be right in thinking that. So uh, they talk about this and they say that the nice is planning to use these combined powers to subjugate the earth and the entire human race. In other words, like the R.E.M. song, it's the end of the world as we know it. So that is a pretty dire situation. So a little detour here to Logris. If you look at that map, you'll see this little green portion over here um, on, I guess that's on your right side of England uh, is Logris. And it is King Arthur's realm and the matter of Britain, which is all of those stories and tales um, from the medieval period. Some of them written down um, as uh, works of art, others just legends passed down associated with Great Britain and Brittany. And this is often described to be the territory of the ancient Britons before the Anglo-Saxons invaded England starting in the fifth century. And Geoffrey of Monmouth, who you might've read if you're a medieval fan at all, um, he wrote a 12th century pseudo history called the Historia Regum Britanniae that people used to think was historical. It was taught as fact for a long time. And then uh, later on they realized, oh wait, (laughs) not so much. Um, But it's still very influential. And so he says in this book that it's named after the legendary King Locrinus. Who was the oldest son of Brutus Troy? Um, Geoffrey uses the word Logris to describe this province, this, this original part of England. It's also in Crayon, Detroit, in uh, the land of the ogres. In his poem *Percival*, which is one of the great stories about the Holy Grail, um, I commend that to you if you like this sort of thing, and um, it, it's really good. So, in various French works. Logris appears as the name of the land or as the capital city, also sometimes called Camelot. Uh, Most of us, well, probably some of y'all are too young to know about the musical Camelot, but uh, that's what most of our American knowledge of King Arthur comes from. Uh, But Thomas Mallory and his Mort d'Artour conflates Logris with England. But the important thing about Logris is that it stands for the ideal and virtuous untainted, early Christian, true England that's described in Arthurian myths and the tales of the Holy Grail. And this is an idea that England, before the fifth century, had a thriving Christian community, which is true. It was thriving enough that it sent bishops to a council in France. Uh, So, and this is a time, I promise I'm not going to go off on St. Patrick too much, but this is a time period when St. Patrick who was living with his Roman parents in England in the Christian family was kidnapped by Viking pirates and sold into slavery in Ireland. That was in the late 300s. So uh, this is all in that same time period. So this idea is that this is a pure Christian, virtuous realm um, that, that persists because that virtue um, is ordained by God. So that's what this sort of Logros idea is. All right. So we're going to look at some key passages. This first one is kind of long, uh, but it's important because it's Jane describing the horror. Imagine waking up in the night and having this sort of thing that you had just dreamed. I dreamed I was in a dark room, said Jane, with queer smells in it, a sort of low humming noise. Then the light came on, but not very much light. And for a long time, I didn't realize what I was looking at. And when I made it out, I thought I saw a face floating in front of me. A face, not a head, if you understand what I mean. That is, there was a beard and nose and eyes. At least you couldn't see the eyes because it had colored glasses on. But there didn't seem to be anything above the eyes, not at first. But as I got used to the light, I got a horrible shock. I thought the face was a mask tied onto a kind of balloon thing. But it wasn't exactly. Perhaps it looked a bit like a man wearing a sort of turban. I'm telling you this dreadfully badly. What it really was was a head, the rest of a head, which had the top part of the skull taken off and then, then as if something inside had boiled over, a great big mass which bulged out from the inside what was left of the skull, wrapped in some kind of composition stuff, but very thin stuff, you could see it twitch. Even in my fright, I remember thinking, oh, kill it, kill it, put it out of its pain but only for a second, because I thought the thing was real, really. It was green-looking, and the mouth was wide open and quite dry. And soon I saw it wasn't exactly floating. It was fixed up on some kind of bracket or shelf or pedestal. I don't know quite what. And there were things hanging from it, from the neck, I mean. Yes, it had a neck and a sort of collar thing around it, but nothing below the collar, no shoulders or body. Only those hanging things. In the dream, I thought it was some kind of new man that had only head and entrails. I thought all those tubes were its insides. But presently, I don't quite know how, I saw that they were artificial. Little rubber tubes and bulbs and little metal things too. I couldn't understand them. All the tubes went into the wall. Well, quite suddenly, like when an engine has started, there came a puff of air out of its mouth with a hard, dry rasping sound. And then there came another and it settled down into a sort of rhythm, huff, 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 like an imitation of breathing. Then came a most horrible thing, the mouth began to dribble. I know it sounds silly but in a way I felt sorry for it because it had no hands, it couldn't wipe its mouth. It seems a small thing compared with all the rest but that's how I felt. Then it began working its mouth about even licking its lips. It was like someone getting a machine into working order to see it doing that just as if it was alive and at the same time dribbling over the beard which was all stiff and dead-looking. So you can see here this whole idea of usurping the role of God with life and death, taking the place of God, choosing to prolong something that's dead and bring it back to life. And of course, this is the very graphic, literal, man without a chest that we see in the abolition of man. And then the next part. Then three people came into the room all dressed up in white with masks on, walking as carefully as cats on the top of a wall. One was a great fat man and another was lanky and bony. The third, here Jane paused involuntarily, the third, I think it was Mark, I mean my husband. And then, said Jane, all three of them came round and stood in front of the head They bowed to it. You couldn't tell if it was looking at them because of its dark glasses. It kept on with that rhythmical huffing noise. Then it spoke. So we hear, we see again, blasphemy, false worship that they're bowing down and worshiping this grotesque, green, dribbling head. And then we switch to the director trying to calm Jane down. Yes, don't think hardly of him that is of Mark. He is suffering. If we are defeated, we shall all go down with him. If we win, we will rescue him. He cannot be far gone yet. He paused, smiled, and added, we're quite used to trouble about husbands here, you know. Poor Ivy's is in jail. In jail? Oh yes, for ordinary theft, but quite a good fellow. Though Jane felt horror to the point of nausea at the sight of her dream of Mark's real surroundings and associates, it had been horror that carried a certain grandeur and mystery with it. The sudden equation between his predicament and that of a common convict whipped the blood to her cheeks. And so what you see here is this compassion that the director has, this compassion for Mark. and contrast, this. With the attitude of the people, the nice, that see everyone is expendable. Here, Mark is bowing down to the head, the enemy that wants to destroy them. And the director is talking to Jane about wanting to rescue him. And then poor Jane is such a snob; She just seems unable to help it. And she still can't get over the fact that her old housekeeper is on equal footing with her. And then for the housekeeper's husband in jail, be on equal footing with her college professor, inner circle husband is just appalling. But what Lewis is talking about here is this idea of equality at the foot of the cross. It's all of what we see in the New Testament about the body of Christ, all of the different parts who are so different, but all need each other. And then there's this theme of redemption that's starting to creep through about even Mark can be redeemed through the action of the director. So now into poor Mark's world. Mark woke up next morning to the consciousness that his head ached all over, but especially at the back. He remembered he had fallen, that was how he'd hurt his head, fallen in that other room with philostrato and Strake. And then as one of the poets said, he discovered in his mind an inflammation swollen and deformed his memory. Oh, but impossible not to be accepted for a moment. It had been a nightmare, it must be shoved away. It would vanish away now that he was fully awake. It was an absurdity. Once in delirium, he'd seen the front part of a horse by itself with no body or hind legs running across a lawn. Had felt it ridiculous at the very moment of seeing it, but not the less horrible for that. That was an absurdity of the same sort. A head without any body underneath, a head that could speak when they turned on the air and the artificial saliva with taps in the next room. His own head began to throb so hard. He had to stop thinking, but he knew it was true, and he could not, as they say, take it. He was very ashamed of this. The virtues he had almost succeeded in banishing from his mind still lived, if only negatively and as weaknesses in his body. And so, what Lewis is getting at here is there's still an innate horror of evil in Mark. He's not all the way gone. He hasn't completely gone to the dark side, as it were. Meantime, he must get up. He must do something about Jane. Apparently, he would have to bring her to Bellberry. His mind had made this decision for him at some some moment he did not remember. He must get her to save his life. All his anxieties about being in the inner ring or getting a job, had shrunk into insignificance. It was a question of life or death. They would kill him if he annoyed them, perhaps behead him. Oh, God, if only they would really kill that monstrous little lump of torture, that lump with a face, which they kept there talking on its steel bracket. All the minor fears at Bellberry, for he knew now that all except the leaders were always afraid, were only emanations from that central fear. He must get Jane. He wasn't fighting against that now. So you see his instinct for self-preservation is kicked in. You see this idea of coercion. Everyone at the nice is working because they are afraid of death. Fear is what motivates everyone in that whole organization. And that sorts his priorities. He's no longer worried about any of the things he used to be worried about. It's completely reshaped what his priorities are. So it must be remembered that in Mark's mind, hardly one rag of noble thought, either Christian or pagan, had a secure logic. His education had been neither scientific nor classical merely modern. The severities both of abstraction and of high human tradition, had passed him by, and he had neither peasant shrewdness nor aristocratic honor to help him. He was a man of straw, a glib examinee in subjects that require no exact knowledge, and the first hint of a real threat to his bodily life knocked him sprawling, and his head ached so terribly, and he felt so sick. Luckily, He now kept a bottle of whiskey in his room, a stiff one enabled him to shave and dress. And this of course is going right back to abolition of man. Miseducation, failure to build that moral warehouse, failure to talk about truth, beauty and goodness, failure to talk about rightly ordered loves. And this miseducation makes him defenseless. He has no arsenal, he has no quiver um, to fight back against any of this. And his only response is self-medication. And I could go off on a whole long thing that this is exactly where our culture is, but I will restrain myself. So, very hard castle. Don't be rude, honey. I'm doing all I can for you. It's only, well, I thought she was behaving pretty oddly when I saw her. Mark well remembered his conversation with his wife on the morning he left for belbury A new stab of fear pierced him. Might not this detestable woman be speaking the truth? What did she say, he asked. If there's anything wrong with her in that way, said the fairy, take my advice, Studic, and have her over here at once. She'll be properly looked after here. You haven't yet told me what she said or did. I wouldn't like to have anyone belonging to me popped into Edgestow Asylum, especially now that we're getting our emergency powers. They'll be using the ordinary patients experimentally, you know, whereas if you'll just sign this form, I'll run over after lunch and have her here this evening. Mark threw his pen on the desk. I shall do nothing of the sort. And you'll see here, again, just lies. And people nice just lie, 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 lie. It's unbelievable. Um, again, this theme of emergency powers to abrogate liberties and this whole loss of sacredness of the body. And this is going to be a theme that is going to continue. I've been trying to tell you, but you don't let me. She kept on talking about someone who'd broken into your flat or else met her at the station and burned her with cigars. Then, most unfortunately, she noticed my cheroot, and if you please, she identified me with this imaginary persecutor. Of course, she's the one that did it. Of course, after that, I could do no good. I must go home at once, said Mark, getting up here. Whoa, you can't do that, said the fairy, also rising. Can't go home. I have bloody well got to, if all this is true. Don't be a fool, Levy, said Miss Hardcastle. Honest, I know what I'm talking about. You're in a damn dangerous position already. You'll about do yourself in if you're absent without leave now. Send me, sign the form. That's the sensible way to do it." So again, lies, coercion, bureaucratic evil. And then Mark's interview with Wither. Mark noticed the door was not quite shut. He ventured to push it open a little further and saw the deputy director sitting inside with his back to the door. "'Excuse me, sir,' said Mark might I speak to you for a few minutes? There was no answer. Excuse me, sir, said Mark in a louder voice, but the figure neither spoke nor moved. With some hesitation, Mark went into the room and walked around to the other side of the desk, but when he turned to look at Wither, he caught his breath, for he thought he was looking into the face of a corpse. A moment later, he recognized his mistake. In the stillness of the room, he could hear the man breathing. He was not even asleep, for his eyes were. He was not unconscious, for his eyes rested momentarily on Mark and then looked away. "'I beg your pardon, sir,' began Mark, and then stopped. The deputy director was not listening. He was so far from listening that Mark felt an insane doubt whether he was there at all, whether the soul of the deputy director were not floating far away, spreading and dissipating itself like a gas through formless and lightless worlds, wastelands and lumber rooms of the universe. What looked out of those pale, watery eyes was, in a sense, infinity, the shapeless and the interminable. The room was still and cold. There was no clock, and the fire had gone out. It was impossible to speak to a face like that. Mark was afraid. It was so unlike any experience he'd ever had before. When at last Mr. Withers spoke, his eyes were not fixed on Mark, but on some remote point beyond him, beyond the window, perhaps in the sky. I know who it is, said Wither. Your name is Speddock. What do you mean by coming here? You had better have stayed outside. Go away. It was then that Mark's nerves suddenly broke. So again, we see Mark, has, he's still got that innate horror of evil. He can't articulate that very well, but he still realizes there's something really wrong Or as a teenager would say, that's messed up. (laughs) All the slowly mounting fears of the last few days ran together into one fixed determination. And a few seconds later, Mark was going downstairs three steps at a time. Then he was crossing the hall. Then he was out and walking down the drive. Once again, his immediate course seemed quite plain to him. Opposite the entrance was a thick belt of trees pierced by a field path. That path would bring him in half an hour to Courthampton and there he could get a country bus to Edgestow. About the future, he did not think at all. Only two things mattered. Firstly, to get out of that house, and secondly, to get back to Jane. He was devoured with a longing for Jane, which was physical without being at all sensual, as if comfort and fortitude would flow from her body, as if her very skin would clean away all the filth that seemed to hang about him. He stopped suddenly. Something impossible was happening. There was a figure before him on the path, a tall, very tall, slightly stooping figure sauntering and humming a little dreary tune, the deputy director himself. And in one moment, all that brittle hardihood was gone from Mark's mood. He turned back. He stood in the road. This seemed to him the worst pain that he ever felt. Then, tired, so tired, he felt the weep tears filling his eyes, he walked very slowly back into Bellberry. So again, we just see this presence of evil, the danger of being complicit with evil. When you toy with evil, you never know when the switch is going to flip and you're going to be taken captive. So back to St. Anne's and McPhee is now speaking to Jane. I should premise at the outset, Mrs. Stubbuck, McPhee said, that I've known the director for a great many years, and that for most of his life, he was a philologist. That's somebody who studies languages, not to learn languages, but the mechanics of language. That's what Tolkien was. I'm not satisfied myself that philology can be regarded as an exact science, but I mentioned the fact as a testimony to his general intellectual capacity. And not for judge any issue, I will not say, as I would an ordinary conversation, that he has always been a man of what you might call an imaginative term. His original name was Ransom. As we talked before about Lewis and names, Ransom is really pretty obvious. Lewis is not being subtle here. Um, Christ is the Ransom for many. and So this is another allusion to the Christ-like aspects of Ransom. But he also says he got one kind of a creature there, which specially concerns us at this moment. He called them eldels. a kind of animal, do you mean? Did you ever try to define the word animal, Mrs. Aesthetic? Not that I remember, I meant, were these things well intelligent? Could they talk? Aye, they could talk. They were intelligent for by, which is not always the same thing. A little humor there, in fact, they were the Martians. That's just what they weren't, according to Ransom's account. They were on Mars, but they didn't rightly belong there. He says they are creatures that live in empty space. So here we see the idea of the reality of creatures that are in a spiritual world. that are outside of our experience, that are not part of our normal understanding of what lives on this earth, but they are around us. So the point, Mrs. Studicus, is this: Dr. Ransom claims he's received continual visits from these creatures since he returned to Earth, so much for his first disappearance. And the long and short of it is that this house, that is Saint Anne's, is dominated either by the creatures I've been talking about, the Eldols, or by sheer delusion. It is by advices he thinks he has received from Eldols that the directors discovered the conspiracy against the human race. And what's more, it's on instruction from the elders that he's conducting the campaign, if you can call it conducting. It may have occurred to you to wonder, Mrs. Studdick, how any man in his senses thinks we're going to defeat a powerful conspiracy by sitting here, growing winter vegetables and training performing bears. It is a question I've profounded on more than one occasion. The answer is always the same. We're waiting for orders from the elders. It was they he met when he spoke of his masters, it's not our own ones the director claims to be in communication with. It's his friends from outer space. Our own crew, the terrestrial elders, are at the back of the whole conspiracy. You are to imagine us, Mrs. steddick living on a world where the criminal classes of the elders have established their headquarters. And that's what's happening now, if the director's views are correct, that their own respectable kith and Ken are visiting this planet to red the place up. You mean the other elders out of space actually come here to this house? That's what the director thinks. So here's this whole idea of spiritual guidance, that there's such a thing as spiritual guidance. There's such a thing as spiritual warfare, and that worldly wisdom and worldly weapons are different from that in the spiritual sphere. So McPhee is very disturbed about all this. They'll have all this country under their hands before we move at this rate. I wish you'd read the poem I'm reading, said Camilla. Can you just imagine McPhee wants action and Camilla's talking about poems. (laughs) For it says in one line, just what I feel about this waiting. Fool, all lies in a passion of patience, my Lord's rule. What's that from, asked Jane, Taliesin through Logris. Well, that's a little aside to Charles Williams, Lewis's friend. But again, it's the idea of waiting on the Lord, um, something that's all through the scriptures, and this Arthurian wisdom from that pure Britain. Um, And then this whole idea about the director's youth um, that we talked about for Paradise still going on there. And this is what we talked about earlier, the Zoe life. Um, Remember, there are two Greek words for life, bios and Zoe. Um, and the life that Jesus brings is that Zoe life, that eternal life that's overflowing from the fountain of life that's at the Trinity and the center of all that's being. And so this Zoe life of deep heaven, unfallen creation is what the director possesses. And so we talked about the fact that he's going to be taken back up to deep heaven. And the director then goes on to explain to them this whole idea that this is a new species. That this is what they're going to call the next step in evolution, and it will be the emergence of the bodiless men. So again, usurping God's role in life and death, men without chests, and then this whole uh, dialogue with McPhee and the director about how to fight it. So, Mr. Director said, McPhee, you'll excuse me for speaking frankly. Your enemies have provided themselves with this head. They've taken possession of Edgesto, and they're in a fair way to suspend the laws of England. And still you tell us it is not time to move. If you'd taken my advice six months ago, we would have had an organization all over this island by now, and maybe a party in the House of Commons. I know well what you'll say, that those are not the right methods, and maybe no. But if you can neither take our advice nor give us anything to do, why are we all sitting here for? Have you seriously considered sending us away and getting some other colleagues you can work with? So, this whole idea again of waiting and how uncomfortable we are, and how we want, when we're faced with adversity, to adopt the world's methods. And then we see ransom again saying, I am the director. Do you think I'd claim the authority i do if the relation between us depended on your choice or mine? You never chose me. I never chose you. Even the great oyoresu which is like super elders, whom I serve, never chose me. I came into their worlds by what seemed at first a chance, as you came to me as the very animals in this house first came. You and I have not started or devised this. It has descended upon us, sucked us into itself, if you like, it is no doubt an organization, but we are not the organizers, and that's why I have no authority to give any one of you permission to lead my household. And this is this whole idea that there is a heavenly authority and a heavenly plan that we are caught up into. So I'm going to skip down um, past some of this Arthurian stuff, and just look at these themes. I'm not going to read all of them, but it's all so much It's like reading Galatians 5 and looking at the works of the flesh. All of it, every one of those works of the flesh, you can find in the nights. It is this whole usurping of the role of God, um, evil, danger, all sorts of um, manipulation and coercion of people. And it's such a contrast to what you see at St. Anne's with the director, where there's mercy and grace and people smiling and beauty and talk of redemption and waiting on uh, this whole idea that the elders are going to help. And the interesting thing is that at the very end of the chapter, the director says that what will result if this is not stopped is the return of Babel and hell on earth. So that's a cheery note on which to end. So let's have some practices of hope and of wisdom. So the first practice is to deepen your understanding of the sacredness of the human body created by God. We live in a culture that is abusing the idea of the sacredness of the human body in every way you can imagine. And as Christians, we need to hold our ground and tell a better story about the purpose of the body, the beauty of the body, the wonder of being made in the image of God. And scripture says so much about this, but just two verses. Do you not know your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, which you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. And the beautiful part from Psalm 139, for you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it well. And then secondly, cultivate an understanding and practice of waiting on the Lord with patience rather than embracing earthly wisdom. This is probably the hardest thing in the world. Uh, But scripture is full of this admonition. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart. And in case you missed it, wait for the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. There's a beauty in that example of ransom waiting on the elders in the face of all this horror and danger, not wanting to get ahead of, the, in our terms, where the Holy Spirit is leading. Third, be aware of the reality of spiritual warfare and seek to be strong in the Lord. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. We need to be able to stand, but the only way we can stand is by doing what we are told in this verse from Ephesians. And then lastly, remember daily that your true life, and I should have made that a capital T and a capital L, your true life is the eternal life of the kingdom of God from Colossians 3. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. I want to just commend to you on the handouts. There's one that is a liturgy for feasting with friends, and it is a glorious way of being reminding yourself that your true life is this hidden life in the kingdom of God. So lastly, George Herbert, come my way, my truth, my life. Um, When I send the email, um, listen to the choral setting. It is exquisite, but just listen to these words. Come my way, my truth, my life. Such a way as gives us breath. Such a truth as ends all strife. Such a life as killeth death. Come, my light, my feast, my strength, such a light as shows a feast, such a feast as mends in length, such a strength as makes a guest. Come, my joy, my love, my heart, such a joy as none can move, such a love as none can part, such a heart as joys in love. There's deep wisdom in this, that as we invite Christ in and we try to apprehend more and more about what that life, that fountain, life-giving fountain of the Trinity, full of love, uh, at the center of all being, the more we can get a hold of that, it will change our perspective on the struggles from this dark world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this book. We thank you for the prescience that Lewis shows and how many of these things are so very relevant to us today. Lord, we pray that as your people, you would encourage us, that you give us strength, that you give us wisdom, that you give us hope, and that we would lean into that Zoe eternal abundant life, that we would be able to tell the suffering and hurting world a more beautiful story that would help draw them to you. For we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for coming. If you're not on the email list, please sign up for that so you can get all the stuff that will come next Tuesday. Thanks for being here.